Meet Hadley. She has struggled to lose weight for years. She tried all sorts of diets and would lose a little, but then always gain it back and then some. Over the years, her struggle has increased. And because she was now going through perimenopause, the added hormonal changes were not helping the situation at all. She was eating well. She was gluten-free. She hardly ate processed foods or a lot of sugar, but her body was just not responding appropriately. It's like she had to be perfect just to prevent the pounds from coming on, forget taking any off. Needless to say, her frustration continued to grow. As she was trying different things, she started hearing about semaglutide, and she wondered if it could be right for her. Does it really work? Is it safe? Does it actually give long-lasting results? And would it be right for her were the questions that was swirling around in her head. And she wanted to see if this could be the missing piece in her weight mystery. Every year, thousands of people are told there's no explanation for their health concerns and no way to fix them. They feel frustrated, undermined, and lost. I know because that was me before I figured out the actual causes and reclaimed my health. Now, I help others do the same. I'm Ina Toppler, and this is Health Mystery Solved. We just heard about Hadley's struggles and all of the questions she had about the right way to lose weight. Join me on the show to talk much more about this is Emily Sadri. This is actually Emily's second time coming on the show. I interviewed her back in episode 107, where we talked about the use of birth control pills and its effect on the thyroid, which was very eye-opening. So if you missed that episode, please be sure to have a listen as well. And for those that may not know Emily, she's a board-certified women's health nurse practitioner, a hormone and weight loss expert, and she has a gift for making complex functional and lifestyle medicine interventions accessible and doable. Emily owns and operates a boutique women's functional medicine practice in Cleveland, Ohio, and she helps women everywhere live a more balanced and healthy life. She is also a very close friend and colleague and I just value her insights so much, and I know that you will too. Emily, I'm so happy to have you here. Welcome back. Oh, Ina, that was such a nice intro. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to get into all of this today because just like Hadley, I know so many other people, and I know my listener here definitely has a lot of these same questions. So when we talk about semi-glutide, first and foremost, what is it, Emily? So semaglutide is a peptide, which has been marketed as a drug now. So it was developed by Novo Nordisk um, in about two, 2012. It hit the market first as a diabetes medication. Was, uh, you may have heard of the drug Ozempic. Ozempic was marketed for diabetes. It has a lot of benefits, and we'll get into some of the um, pharmacologic actions in a little bit. And what they discovered while treating diabetes was that a lot of people had weight loss. So then they continued to work on developing the drug and using higher doses. And that's where Wagovi came in. Wagovi is the commercial name for semaglutide that's you know on the market that you can get from your pharmacy for weight loss purposes. So that's prescribed for obesity. Um, and that's a once weekly injection. 
So there's a lot of drugs in this class, actually. There's an oral one called Rebelsis. There's Trulicity, which is another once-weekly injection. And um, there's Liraglutide or Victoza, which is a once-daily injection. So there's been a bunch of different iterations. Um, and sometimes people who are getting prescriptions for these for weight loss need to trial some other ones before getting Wagovi. But Wagovi in general, what the research showed, and that's semaglutide, which we're going to dive into today, was that people who were treated with this drug had an average of 15% of body weight loss, which is pretty astounding. Um, it's a huge number. So the people in this study generally weighed about 200 to 230 pounds. And so their weight loss was about 35 pounds, but that's a huge amount. Um, and this, that, that study was done without, you know, a significant amount of, of lifestyle or diet counseling. So they're not even getting traditional weight loss, you know, interventions. They're just getting this one intervention. So it's pretty remarkable in terms of um, a weight loss medication compared to other things that have come on the market. Sometimes people, um, you know, ask if it's like other weight loss medications, many of which are stimulants, really. And one of the ways that they work is by appetite suppression. Now, semaglutide has some appetite suppression by different mechanisms, um, not in the way that these stimulants work. So it's, it's kind of a breath of fresh air because especially with the population that I work with, which is women, primarily 35 to 55, those women are incredibly sensitive to anything that stimulates their stress stress pathways. As you know, like this is this is a tough sort of phase of life to be in. Um, we're typically managing little kids or or school age kids or older kids, and potentially kind of helping our, the older generation. We're all we have busy careers. Potentially, there's just a lot going on. Um, and so I really try to avoid anything that's going to increase stress response. And I don't like the use of stimulants for weight loss in, in this population of women. It will, it potentially will suppress appetite, but um, that's not necessarily uh, good for metabolism long term. And there can be some, some sort of bad uh, side effects from those. So Semaglutide is a really interesting drug because it has many mechanisms of action by which it causes weight loss. And one of them is decreasing appetite, it slows gastric emptying, which means essentially it just slows down digestion. So it makes your your stomach sort of uh, empty into your small intestines more slowly and promotes a feeling of fullness. But it also acts on the hypothalamus, which I know you love to talk about all the time. Um, and you know, so many things in the body come back to the hypothalamus. And if you're not familiar with what that is, it's a part of the brain that um, regulates signaling for many different functions by way of the pituitary, for the hormonal access, for the thyroid, which Ina loves to talk about. But it also, the hypothalamus really controls sympathetic nervous system signaling. And so semaglutide modulates and actually increases sympathetic output just a little bit. Um, and by doing that, it stimulates lipolysis. So it actually breaks down fat. So it kind of, it just raises people's basal metabolic rate, just marginally, but enough so that over time it puts people in a point place of net loss. So they're, they're losing weight, which is huge because that's the thing that we have so much trouble turning on for women, despite calorie restriction and exercise. In fact, some women, and you probably have seen this in your own practice, they do the calorie restriction and they do tons of exercise and sometimes they're not losing weight. They're even gaining weight in that. So that old formula is just, you know, it's heartbreaking to see, to see people really believing in that and then not having results and believing that there's something wrong with them. For sure. Can you talk a little bit about 
why there is such weight loss resistance and when people do that, how that can actually make it worse and why they would gain weight from doing that. Yeah. So think about so many women, especially the population that I work with, um, you know, we're children of the 80s and 90s, we're the slim fast generation, weight watchers, restrict portion size. It's stressful to the body to have caloric restriction. Um, You know, caloric restriction will stimulate weight loss. But the interesting thing about the obesity epidemic, you know, is that we have seen since the 1970s, the rate of overweight and obesity has increased markedly, but the rate of calorie consumption really hasn't. In large part, not so much that we're eating more calories, but the quality of the foods that we're eating and also, I think, um, you know, our, our lifestyle. Of course, there's so many things that that are at play with, with weight gain. I think that, you know, toxicity, liver health, um, gut microbiome, so many of these things play a role. What I find is that initially people will lose weight, potentially like women will lose weight with that calorie restriction model, maybe when they're 25, even 30, and then they keep trying to go back and do it. And you've probably seen this, or maybe you've even experienced this yourself. You think to yourself, well, 10 years ago or five years ago, or even a year ago, I did this and I was so successful. I'm just going to get back on the horse and I'm going to do it again. And then they do it again. And they're like, why isn't it working? Like I'm not doing it well enough. So let me do it better. And better means eat less usually. This is so stressful for the body. And also the body becomes adaptive. And so it says, okay, well, so, you know, Ina's not eating now. So I'm just going to, I'm going to store all of her fat like really, really well, because I'm pretty sure that this famine is like ongoing. She has a history of exposing me to famine. Right. So the body remembers she has a history of exposing me to famine. So I'm just going to be really prepared this time and I'm not going to release any of the fat stores. This is energy that I'm going to need to run my organs and, and et cetera, et cetera, going forward. And so I'm just going to hold on to this, to these fat stores. And so that's where you get people in this position where no matter what they do, they can't lose weight. There's the other piece that I see and that I treat is that women have a lot of hormonal issues. And so there's sort of two pieces. I think this is a lot simpler for men, but for women, it's really two sides. You need to treat the metabolic dysfunction, which the semaglutide does really brilliantly. And we'll talk more about how it does that in a second. But you also need to treat, um, you know, estrogen balance, estrogen excess or deficiency can both cause um, weight gain, especially around the waist. And you need to treat imbalanced cortisol. So we we need basic lifestyle things like we need to teach people to sleep. We need to teach people to not have, you know, cortisol inducing activities late at night, like um, scrolling and looking at, um, you know, bright screens. We need to get people into um, natural sunlight exposure to help set their cortisol melatonin rhythm. So there's a lot of things that people need to, you know, be working on. But what I find, and you probably see this too, is that when someone walks through the door, who's, you know, 20 to 30 pounds overweight, and of course, semaglutide is used on all types of, uh, all classes of, of overweight and obesity, but this is what I typically see. They're 20 to 30 pounds overweight. They are exhausted. They feel terrible um, energy-wise, mood-wise, but they also just feel terrible about themselves because they feel like they can't accomplish what they want to accomplish. And so while I want them to do all of the lifestyle things like um, eating the right amount of macronutrients, getting in enough protein, you know, making sure that they're nourished, getting sleep, having good boundaries, like managing stress. Sometimes all of that feels so overwhelming. And we try to do those things, of course, but using this medication that will help modulate the metabolism is like the leg up that they really need. 
and it gives them that um, kind of push up the mountain. I think of like the little engine that could, it gives them that push up the mountain. So then they can just kind of go and they, they start to feel better. And then they can start to make the decisions that will help set them up metabolically for a, a better, to be in a better place down the line. I'm assuming also in addition to all of the metabolic help, there's also the emotional component, right? Where you're actually seeing something shift and you're thinking, oh my gosh, okay, something is finally working because for the last year, 10 years, whatever it was, right? I'm doing all the stuff and nothing is happening because that's just hard. That's so hard. Yeah. People, people need that reassurance. I mean, it's just like, it's like little kids when they're learning things, like if it's something that's, that they that's way above their developmental stage, they're not going to keep trying, right? If it's, if it's not going to be possible for them, like tie, you're not going to teach a two-year-old to tie their shoes. They just don't have the fine motor skills, right? Their hands just aren't even big enough yet. So they, they're not going to keep trying because they, they're not going to make any progress, right? So you, you have to have that feedback for the brain to feel confident to move forward and to keep trusting the process and making the next right decision that like it's going okay. You know, and I would see so many women who they would go to extremes, you know, the, they would do the keto diet, which I think definitely has utility in certain clinical situations, but long-term for women can be really deleterious for the hormones, or they would just fast, or they would just not eat that much, which with, you know, not eating much without a good plan is probably the worst approach because it creates the most stress. And then they just, you know, they really feel like nothing will work. And so when you start to restore balance. And one of the, one of the things that semaglutide does, so I'll just talk a little bit about the mechanisms of action now. So it's very interesting because, um, you may have heard in terms of weight loss and longevity and kind of health optimization that insulin is bad. And I even talk about this. We know that elevated insulin is associated with all kinds of metabolic issues and it's pro-inflammatory. Um, it's a fat storage hormone. So when we see elevated insulin, even in the absence of elevated fasting glucose or elevated A1C, we think this person is headed metabolically in the wrong direction. So the interesting thing about semaglutide is that initially it actually raises insulin even more. That's so interesting. Yeah, it's people are trying to figure out why. Like, how does it do that? It's kind of a conundrum, and it and it flies a little bit in the face of all these like you know anti-insulin theories. So in initially, it raises insulin, which is why it works for diabetics, but it lowers glucose. Mm -hmm. And what I see for people initially when you start when they start to, to see this shift is that so many women, overweight or not, are on such a glucose roller coaster throughout the day. They're not eating sufficient fat and protein. Um, they're eating the way that they ate in their twenties, especially as they age, that's not supportive anymore of, of, of good glucose and met glucose metabolism. And so as soon as you raise that insulin a little bit, their glucose starts to stabilize and they're not having such big reactions to things as simple as like a sweet potato or, you know, some quinoa with their lunch, um, that was previously spiking their blood sugar. And so they start to feel this evenness. Um, and the way that I hear patients describe it is like, I just, well, there's some of that anxiety goes away that you think of when you think of blood sugar irregularity, they feel like in a, like in a Zen kind of detachment way, you know, with food, because there's not this chemical, um, you know, dip in blood sugar that's driving hunger. You know, the G so, so GLP one, just to back it up a little bit is a peptide hormone. Peptide is a component of a protein. So we think of building blocks in the body as amino acids, amino acids form to make peptides and peptides form to make proteins. Um, so we have lots of peptide chemicals in the body that signal all kinds of things, and many of them are produced after we eat. So some of the hormones, the peptide hormones that we create, um, you know, help with satiety, meaning fullness, um, and GLP-1 is one of those. So we make this endogenously already in our body. 
So when we give more of it, it actually increases our sensitivity to leptin, which is our like satiety hormone. So it it is working on satiety and fullness in lots of ways. And we don't really fully know why some of these like hormone signals get kind of messed up along the way. You know, there's lots of theories like, uh, you know, historically, we, we didn't have all of the food that we ever wanted all the time in front of us, <laughs> right? Like, that's just not how we, Very true. you know, it's, it's, it's humans. And it's, so we're kind of not wired for that. Like, we're not wired to say like, I'm, I'm full. <laughs> Stop eating. We're wired to eat like as much as we can get our hands on to then save up for a rainy day. And that doesn't, you know, that rainy day doesn't really come anymore in modern America. And so that is one of the main drivers of the obesity epidemic. I mean, that's just one theory, you know, but it also, so it, th- this regulation happens where people start to, it's kind of like you turn on this internal signaling again, that just says, and people will say like, I hit a semaglutide wall, they'll be eating. And then they'll be like, I, I just, it was like something internally just said, okay, we're done. And it wasn't like a, I feel sickly full. It's just like, I'm done now. That in and of itself feels like a gift to many people. Yes, I could see that for sure. You know, it's like when you feel like you're a slave to your brain or a slave to cravings, and then you have all these thoughts and beliefs about why you're having these cravings and feelings, like it, it creates kind of a mental, some mental chaos. So it's very freeing for people that way. So then, so initially it will increase insulin and then over time it decreases insulin. Um, it also increases like the transport of glucose into the cells. So it allows for better uptake of energy. So that's how it lowers circulating glucose, which we don't want. And what happens with this is that oftentimes initially people will feel like a little energy slump when they first start semaglutide and they may notice if they're exercisers that their performance decreases a little bit or they just feel a little bit more tired while they're exercising because there's been a bit of a shift in kind of how we are moving energy around the body. And then over time, people feel like that actually reverses and their performance becomes better. The other thing that it does, which is what I find so wonderful for women who have very sensitive stress responses is that it decreases gluconeogenesis, which is the process by which the liver makes new glucose and pumps it out into the bloodstream. So one thing that that I'll see, I see this with myself, I see this with lots of um, women who are prone, who are kind of sensitive to stress. And when I say sensitive to stress, I mean that, you know, under the impact of cortisol, like all of their body systems turn on really quickly. <laughs> like they're, and one of the things that happens in response to cortisol is gluconeogenesis. We make new glucose. So you'll see this if someone's using a continuous glucose monitor, which I advocate for all the time because it's so helpful to see what your body's doing moment to moment. Um, is that people will wake up in the morning and at 6 a.m., their blood glucose is 80. And at 7 a.m., it's 105, but they haven't eaten anything yet. Which I think is just fascinating because people don't think of it that way. Nope. They have no idea. And so maybe they're going in for fasting labs and they get their glucose done. It's 105, but they don't realize that an hour or two before it was it was 80 and it was 80s and 70s all night long. Just they're acutely sensitive to stress. And so their body is figuring out a way to have lots of abundant fuel circulating and available for muscles and for activity, brain function, whatever. And it's making it from what it already has. It doesn't need new fuel to make it. And so this actually becomes a problem for weight loss. And I see this pattern, especially in people who are resistant to weight loss, is that, you know, and I think some of it's learned. These are people that maybe had a pattern since college where they just generally eat for a lot of the day. They would drink coffee and they'd maybe like be starving at two o'clock and they'd eat right? And then they do it again. Um, And maybe that was even something that helped them like maintain their weight. But the body had to figure out how to make fuel 
And so it did. (laughs) And so even when we want to turn that off, because now it's like preventing you from having nice low resting glucose and then burn it moving into a place where you're actually burning up fat for fuel where in which will stimulate weight loss it's keeping you stuck in this in this place so that is a really nice benefit of semaglutide too is that it just decreases that that process of making new glucose and lowers overall glucose and it does that by lowering glucogenesis specifically in stressful situations or just in general in general, in general. Yep. It, it, it st- stops or lowers gluconeogenesis in general. And people who um, are sensitive to stress and cortisol, especially women, I find tend to make a lot of glucose by gluconeogenesis. And that's why I think that it's especially helpful for them. But, um, you know, there's all kinds of reasons why your liver will make glucose with gluconeogenesis and cortisol is just one trigger for that. Now, for people who might be interested to know how to use it and what to do, is this something that is used long-term or short-term? Because there's so many questions about that. Give us a little bit more detail. It's interesting because when you read from, um, you know, Norval Nodisk or you read any of the scientific literature, they'll talk about how this is like a long-term weight management medication. Like it was designed to be a lifelong thing. I can certainly see how there are people who who probably do need to use it long-term. My hope for people is that we start to work on all of the other things that will promote healthy metabolic flexibility and the ability to burn fat easily and to flip into fat burning mode um, while you're on semaglutide so that you can transition off or move to like a very small maintenance dose that may not even need to be given weekly. So semaglutide, I think I said this in the beginning, but it's given as a weekly injection um, and it's titrated. So when you start, you start on a quarter of a milligram and you do that dose once a week for four weeks, and then you go up to half a milligram for four weeks. Now, the reason that this gets titrated very slowly all the way up until you get to the target dose, which is 2.4 milligrams, is because there are many side effects. Some people are far more sensitive to the side effects than others. Some people have almost no side effects. Um, but, you know, a couple, the most prime, the primary side effects that people experience are nausea, um, certainly, you know, anorexia, reduced appetite, and that, that initial fatigue. But nausea, stomach pain, uh, or just sort of like a feeling of kind of feeling sick. But it's interesting, some of the gastric peptides that it increases are the same gastric peptides that get released when you have food poisoning, Mm. (laughs) which is protective, you know, because it it gives you an aversion to food, like your body knows it needs to not eat more. And some people are just acutely sensitive to those peptides, those those hormones, and some people are not. And so I, what I often see and like most see with the people that are on this medication is that they feel um, some, a little bit of nausea on day two or three, and then it subsides. And, and typically that gets better over time. Like their body just kind of gets used to it. So we, we titrate up and then I usually people are on the medication for at least nine to 12 months. But again, it's very individual. So depends on how much weight that person wants to lose. And, you know, you ideally are staying on it to support weight loss until the optimal weight is achieved. And this is very important. Often in the first three to six months of that time period, I'm just doing very gentle things with someone. I'm trying to get them to move a little bit more. We're hoping to clean up the diet, clean up the gut, um, and in my population, balance hormones. So whether that means just supporting hormone metabolism or um, supporting you know, progesterone production with diet and potentially supplements, or if it means using hormone replacement therapy to get their hormones in, in good standing, we're working on that. So we're kind of like working on the whole system 
try to get things working better. And then what I usually find is after six months, people are starting to feel really good. They have more energy, their weight loss. Um, they're almost at their weight loss goal. And, you know, with any weight loss, weight loss with the medication is no different. Anytime you're losing weight, if you're not eating a significant amount of protein and strength training, you're losing fat and muscle. So even though semaglutide does increase lipolysis, it's also go you're going to lose muscle mass, which is extremely concerning, especially in people as they age, because that's, an, that's something that happens naturally with aging. So it's really important. And I think this is probably where um, people are not getting enough information in a conventional setting. It's imperative. And I insist that if I have someone on this medication, that at some point into their journey, when they're feeling up for it, they're doing a pretty rigorous strength training regimen. Um, because the other thing is that muscle is so important for metabolic balance. Muscle is like a giant endocrine organ. It skeletal muscle takes up glucose. It's like a big landing ground. It's like a bucket for glucose. And so we need a lot of muscle. And most people as they age will lose muscle and gain fat every year just as a natural process of aging. And so if you ever want to get off of semaglutide, you've really got to preserve and then build muscle. So I'd like to say if you want to preserve muscle, you need to eat enough protein. And we'll talk about targets in a second. And if you want to um, gain muscle, like gain lean body mass to then have a different metabolic profile when you're done with the medication, right? Because usually people are coming in with that, with that lean body, lean body mass muscle to adipose tissue ratio being off. If you want to come off medication with a different ratio so that you can sustain this weight loss, you're going to need to build muscle. I always talk about protein and, and most women are grossly, grossly under eating protein. I mean, I don't know what you see in your practice, but some research will say that most women are in America are eating about 65 grams of protein per day. And the RDA is, is not far from that, but the, remember that the recommended daily allowance, that's like that column that you see on the back of food boxes, right? That's like, that's like the amount that you need to not have malnutrition. Yeah. Just to, or to even just stay the same and not improve at all, right? We want to improve. So we need so much more for sure. And so with protein, how much protein do you feel that a, a woman should eat in a day. So because so many women are under eating, I don't like to get to optimal targets right away. Usually start with telling people to try to get 30 grams at every meal, which is much more than people are usually at already. And then maybe a 10 gram snack if they're feeling mm -hmm. fancy. <laughs> so 30, 30, 30, 10 is like a good rule of thumb to at least be getting sufficient amounts. It may not be enough depending, especially depending on the person's body weight and how, how tall they are may not be enough to build muscle, but at least it's going to be enough to promote glucose stabilization and it's going to make them feel better, especially as they're getting old, older. Mm -hmm. What about those who are vegetarian? Do you find that if they get protein from, say, a good quality protein powder, even if it is plant-based, would that suffice? Oof. It's a loaded question, Ina. That's like a whole other podcast episode. Um, <laughs> there are 20 amino acids, as you know, nine are essential. You can get all nine essential acid, uh, amino acids from animal sources, and it's um, possible to get all those nine essential amino acids from vegetarian sources. However, especially for someone who, from a metabolic standpoint, is trying to lose weight, the amount of calories that you need to consume in order to get those nine essential amino acids is 
really deleterious. It's, it's very, um, it's almost dangerous. Like they would have to eat a huge amount of calories and carbohydrates in order to get that, I mean, those amino acids. So if possible, I try to encourage women to have lots of plants in their diet, of course. Um, but to consider that, you know, the nutrient density of animal protein is going to get them a lot further than plant protein alone. Right. But what if they're using a plant protein powder? That's what I meant, like a rice protein or a pea protein powder, because of course it would be very hard to get that much protein from just plants themselves. Yeah. I mean, I think that there are some decent protein powders in the market, but a lot of them are highly processed. Um, you know, they're not whole foods. They go through like multiple processes of hy- hydrolyzation and they're not the optimal thing for the gut to be digesting. So they, they can work and they're better than nothing. Um, you know, there's a popular documentary on Netflix that talks about the, the, all of the virtues of a vegetarian diet. And there's an athlete on there who's eating like four soy protein shakes a day to keep up with his protein needs. For me and what I see, it feels counterintuitive. Right. No, I totally hear you on that. Yeah. So everybody has, I mean, and people are going to come in with different cultural and religious preferences, of course, but I find that actually most of the time it's just discomfort with eating meat and kind of a cultural like um, belief that women with like nice girls don't eat a lot of meat. Like nice girls get like- <laughs> Nice girls get a salad. <laughs> exactly. With a tiny portion of chicken and we don't even eat all the chicken, you know? Because we're not greedy and like we don't finish our food. And and I think that that has, is just come, goes back to the Weight Watchers phenomenon, which is like eat a deck of card side, size of meat, which is usually two to three ounces. And you should be eating almost double that, especially if your protein targets are higher. So it's a lot of it is just that women feel uncomfortable, like they're being they're being masculine if they're eating that much protein. I don't have that issue, as you know, when you and I went to a steakhouse. Um. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. But I think the other part is that people they don't know how to make meat taste good. And so they, they look at a package of like defrosted or frozen meat and like, they don't know what to do with it. It seems like it kind of stimulates like, Oh, especially people who are in semaglutide. They're like, I don't want to eat that, <laughs> you know? Um, and because, you know, one of the things that semaglutide does, and I'm going in circles a little bit, but this is an important point because it slows digestion. Um, many women benefit from being on a digestive enzyme while they're taking it or men. And of course that, you know, you have to make sure that it, it fits, for, works with you and that you're consulting someone and um, for a small percentage of people that have reflux and things that may worsen their symptoms. But most of the time that does help, um, especially with people who have kind of an aversion to protein. I find that if you add digest, a digestive enzyme in, taken a few minutes into the meal, that they tolerate digesting and breaking down that protein. Mm. So initially I'll start people with like a 90 to 100 gram goal just to get them up to baseline. And then when we're in that sort of second phase of treatment where things are starting to normalize, hormones are better, glucose has lowered um, and stabilized and people have more energy, um, then we start to think about goals for muscle building. Because if we want to get off of the semaglutide, my goal is for them to build muscle mass. And the only way you can build muscle mass is eating a larger amount of protein and strength training. And so I'll have people um, do like a calculation roughly to like what their target lean body mass is. So if my target body weight was 145, if that's like my, you know, very thin muscular weight, then I would be aiming to get 145 grams of protein a day, which if someone's starting out with 60 is impossible. Of course. Right. This is like a down the line kind of place to be. But if people are thinking and listening because they're wondering, how do I ever get off of it? That's where I see the most success is when they can get to that higher protein um, target and be doing nice, good, heavy strength training. So we're not talking Pilates with like eight pound dumbbells. You know, we're talking like kettlebells um, and heavy, strong lifting. 
That's really, really good to know because one of the things when you hear about semiglutide and I mean, it's all over the media now, right? And there's people who are like, oh my God, it's magic. It's the best thing ever, right? And there's the other side that's like, no, it's bad. There's all these side effects and you lose muscle and you lose bone and all of these kind of things. And I think that as you mentioned, so many people don't really get the proper guidance. And so they may try it, but they don't understand the component of maintaining muscle and then eventually even gaining muscle. Because the other thing that, at least from the media, that is often said is that, oh, well, you could go on and lose weight, but as soon as you get off, you'll gain it all back. And I think that's just such an important point. What you're saying is, no, you don't gain it all back if you do it the right way and get off properly while you're maintaining, but also building muscle. Because I think when people do that just as this one thing and don't change anything else and don't change their lifestyle, don't change their diet, then yes, it's going to come back and possibly put them in a worse off place. Yeah, they have nothing to fall back on. They have no, they haven't built a new system, right? So the mechanics and the body are going to go right back to where they were because, you know, muscle and fat act as endocrine organs. They secrete hormones. They, they modulate glucose and insulin levels. So you have to change that composition in order to change the story. And, you know, and that's, that's a lot more work than just giving people a prescription. So, I mean, over the last year, it's becoming so, so popular. And of course, anytime something increases in popularity, the backlash is going to increase too. Uh, We've of course, you know, gotten lots of people saying like there, I see all these, these terrible things. What do you think? You know, I think my, my stance is the same. Like I, it's interesting. I, I think I said this to you before we started, I'm always trying to get people off of medication in my practice, but I, I do love this tool. I think it's a wonderful tool. I think it's really helped a lot of people and nothing is a magic bullet ever. Like it always has to be a part of a larger plan. And we always have to look at the whole body, the mental health, um, stress management, sleep, all of the basic things. We have to work on those too. And if you just do the magic bullet, that's fine. You just may be dependent on the magic bullet for a long time. Emily. It's been so informative because there is so much information, but also misinformation out there. And it's just so good to hear all of this and for people to really understand you know, the history, how it works, if they wanted to try it, what other things they have to do so they really have the most success with it. Yeah. Oh, you know what? I wanted to just say one thing too. I don't think we covered this was you know, how people get semaglutide. If you have diabetes, it's covered typically like azozempic, which is really nice if you if you're listening and you have type 2 diabetes, it's definitely something you want to ask talk to your practitioner about. If you meet BMI minimums, which range, um, but often it's a BMI of 30 to 35 is the minimum, you are often eligible to have insurance cover either liraglutide, which is Victoza, or Wagovi, which is semaglutide. Um, it's always nice, of course, if those things can be covered. If they aren't covered by your insurance or you don't quite meet criteria, but you still have metabolic issues, like maybe you have a high fasting glucose, like I did, you know, and you need to, you want to lose 20 pounds so you don't meet the BMI criteria um, and you find a practitioner to work with you, um, there are lots of compounding pharmacies that are, are manufacturing semaglutide and people will, people have different feelings on compounding pharmacies. You know, one thing I just like to tell everybody, and this goes for hormones or any kind of thing that you're taking Compounding pharmacies are not making medications like the medications themselves are not necessarily FDA approved like a commercial medication because it's not the exact same, right? So it's not like semaglutide by by Novo Nordisk is one product and they're making it exactly the same. 
in a, a compounding pharmacy, they're compounding it. Um, and so they may, you know, do it like add a little, let me add a little B6 to it or something. And because it's like, it's like small batch, right? They can't, they can't like look at every single thing that's, that's produced, but the pharmacies themselves undergo rigorous FDA, like guidelines and, and inspections and have to get approval. And they're not just like these wild west kind of establishments. They have a lot of um, operating rules and kind of things that they abide by and they're highly trained pharmacists, et cetera. Of course, you know, you want to work with a licensed practitioner um, who, you know, knows what they're doing and who you trust. But I, I have found that for that sort of subset of people that don't meet the criteria where their insurance will cover the drug, it's extremely expensive. It's, it can be thousands of dollars for a month's supply. Um, and going by way of a compounding pharmacy through, uh, if your practitioner is able to prescribe there, um, can be really nice way to kind of go around that. Mm. What type of cost are you looking at if you're doing compounding? Uh, I think it varies. But if the target dose to get up to is um, 2.4 milligrams, um, you know, typical costs for two to four milligrams can be anywhere in a vial. So if you get a vial of five milligrams, it could be $95 to $180. Okay. Well, that's a big difference versus thousands of dollars when the medication doesn't cover it. So that's really, really good to know. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, I think it's, you, you do this. This is what you, you know, you are, you are here to, you tell people how to think of alternatives. I think that that is life-changing for people to know that they have options to utilize things that are out there and they may not be able to get it from their typical primary care provider because their primary care provider just doesn't know about it. But they're out there and they're helping people and it's so important that people have access to that knowledge. Absolutely. Emily, how can people find you if they want to connect with you or contact you? Yeah, awesome. So you can always find me on Instagram. So I'm at Emily Sadri underscore NP. And then I also have a free handout of some of the information that we covered. Um, if you're curious a little bit about kind of weight loss and my approach, it's called um, Hormones and Weight Loss. It's a free handout for you guys. And it'll be at emilysadri.com backslash health mysteries solved. That is fantastic. And we will, of course, post a link to that in the show notes, emilysadri.com backslash health mystery solved. Emily, this has been so, so helpful. And I know so many people have questions. Hadley's not the only one he was dealing with all this. So I know this is going to give people a lot of information that they need. So thank you so much for being here and we will chat soon. Thank you for having me, Ina. It was an absolute pleasure. As you just heard, semi-glutide can have so many benefits, but it's so important to be aware that it's used together with diet, with lifestyle, and with proper exercise to see the results that you're looking for. Like most things, it's not a magic bullet on its own without changing anything else. There's really no such thing. But as Emily explained, when used correctly while addressing all of the other areas that need support in the body, it can really help. Hadley decided to try it and has been doing great. It's been three months and she has steadily upped her dose as per the recommendation of her overseeing practitioner while we have been supporting and optimizing her thyroid, adrenals, and diet. She's down 12 pounds so far and is super excited. If Hadley sounds like someone you know, can you please share this episode with them? And if you're on Instagram and if you can share the episode, I would so appreciate it and I always love reposting. It's such a pleasure connecting with you here, and I'm so happy to be here to inspire and encourage you. And just remember that when it comes to your health issues, please, please don't give up. The answers are out there, and there really is hope. 
Thank you so much for tuning in. And I will see you next time on Health Mystery Solved, Thyroid and Hashimoto's Revealed. All information, content, and material on this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider.